Welcome back to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders focusing on transforming talented individuals into extraordinary teams. I'm not going to tell you where we are today, first, partly because we're in the same place as we always are, and secondly, because this is a continuation of our conversation with Mark Templeton, so we're sat in exactly the same spot as we were in the previous episode. So, Shah, lead us off. Thank you, Sam. So, Mark, um, to kick us off, I wanted to ask you, uh, we're working right now with other tech organisations that are also going through rapid hypergrowth. What advice would you give them at this point? Well, first of all, I'd say know your why and shout it from the mountaintop. I find this is the hardest thing for companies to to articulate is their why, because it can be a little squishy for people who are so-called business people. But knowing your why is how you get customers and partners and employees to follow you through thick and thin. So that's my first bit of advice for hyper growth, because when you're growing fast, you need people who will follow you fast. The second thing I thought about is, um, and I see this as a tendency for a lot of hyper growth companies, is my, my advice is to think outside in, think customer in, think market in and fight the inertia of inside out thinking and the natural tendency um, and the inertia in companies is to optimize themselves, you know, and think inside out. But by thinking outside in, customer in, it's how you, you, can grow more effectively because in the end you can only harvest the value that you create and the value create that you create happens by solving customer problems so that would be my second sort of big piece of advice i think the the third thing is on the inside but it's about your culture so define, teach, and measure your culture. And it's important because consistency in how you get things done and the values of your team will keep them focused on outcomes and accomplishment as opposed to devolving into politics, entitlements, and so-called busy and bureaucratic work. I think it's uh, incredibly important as a foundational element uh, for for high growth. The the next thing is about simplicity, which is also you know something that's really hard to do. But I'd say that you know you my advice would be to celebrate and ask for simplicity. I think that people respond to things that you celebrate and they'll respond to things that you ask for. So unless you ask for simplicity, you'll tend not to get it. The natural human inertia is, oh, I could add this on, I could add that on, I could do this, I could also do that, I could do that. And more equals more complex. So, and this cuts across everything. 
value messaging, have uh, fewer organizational layers is simpler, all right? If you have a process, remove steps from a process, that makes it simpler. If you, you know, are building software, uh, fewer clicks, fewer choices, uh, et cetera. Being more opinionated about uh, how you deliver value uh, usually results in a simpler product. You know, require fewer approval and decision points in a process. You know, you know anywhere you, where you're reducing, uh, you're making simpler. And whenever you reduce and make something simpler, you can go faster. It's, it's kind of an immutable law. I agree with that. 100% agree with that. The hardest thing in the world is to stop doing something in order to start doing something. All right. And yeah. so, so people tend to not stop doing they just things. add on and they just add on yeah. Right? yeah and um and i can't say that as as a leader and as a company we were particularly good at that at citrix you know but it is a way to drive simplicity and to keep investing in higher return and higher value things that that are new and releasing the lower value things, uh, but maintaining a level of simplicity because you, your, your total number of activities has not increased. And then the, the last thing I think for hyper growth companies is also very difficult. And that is to measure what, what really matters. And I think the hardest thing to decide is what are the very few things that truly matter to make a business tick and scale and accelerate. And uh, where the confusion comes in is there are 50 metrics and there is no hierarchy to the metrics. So it makes 50 things look equally important. Yes. Right. So the magic in this is to have five measures, let's say at level one, that tie to, let's say, 15 measures that are at level two, that tie to, let's say, 45 measures, you know, I'm making it up here at level three, and then stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there aren't any more, because you, know, you, you just can't, no one can comprehend that many and keep track of that many things, you know. And there's a science to it, but there's a lot of art to it, you know. And you know, again, it's easy to give advice that makes a lot of intellectual sense. The magic is in the difficulty of trying to put it into an operational effect. But the simplicity thing. So we recorded two podcasts actually, and actually one was with the former MD of Softcat. So Colin Brown took Softcat from a hundred million to just under two billion, and he said, wow. "The yeah, incredible story." But his his magic was keep it simple, 
and focus so you can focus on the people keep the strategy simple but what and and then we we actually recorded one the week after and that was with one of our amplified advisors who'd come up the ranks through tesco's in the 90s when when tesco's really went through rapid growth and the similarities between keeping it simple was very very similar but what we didn't get to and what you've just shared with us there is that actually you have simple as part of the strategy so you're always looking at what you can make more simple and we didn't get to that so so that's that's super helpful thank you yeah generally I mean it's a again one an immutable law of life because I've seen it play out in different situations if people are afraid to ask for what they want all right and so uh, and maybe afraid is not the right word they're not afraid they just I think I think afraid is the right word actually we just it's and it, it was it was like me asking you to do this actually I had to have these two guys go have you asked him again yet and look <laughs> you, you wanted to do it what stopped me asking you yeah yeah no knowing I, the relationship that we have what stopped me yeah yeah you know and that's why I in the advice I I I, I said you know you have to ask you celebrate it and you have to ask for it I mean, yeah. I have, I've seen organizations that I'm part of for a long time in my life. There's a membership fee and all that, and that's how they stay alive. And then one day they come along and they, they realize that, hey, uh, this is not sustainable. Okay, we're going to be gone. So they have to ask for donations. And they're always shocked by the response that they get because they were afraid to ask. Yes. They felt bad about asking. Yeah. And if you have actually a good organization and it's doing something positive and good for people, people will donate. They'll 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 help. But asking's important. Yeah. Shad, did you did you have something you wanted to add? No, when we were just okay. talking about asking Mark on the podcast, you know, I just said to Vicky, look, we know Mark. And he will say yes or no. Why are you afraid to ask him? Because you'll have your answer then. Why wait? So yes, I did push Vicky to ask you. And I'm delighted that she did. And I'm delighted that you agreed. So I just want to thank you again. You know, I can't, re- I can't resist saying something. So one of the things that Sam said earlier that he feels like he's an amalgam. Okay. I mean... I feel the same way. Like I have these expressions. Many times I'll try to give credit to where they came from because it helps me celebrate and honor mentors and all. So Roger had this saying, why wonder when you can just ask? Mm-hmm. Very gay. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, and he would apply that to, because there are a lot of things you need to wonder about. All right. So, there are lots of things you can ask about, all right? Yeah. Either because there's nowhere to ask, no one to ask, or, you know, it's, there's enough ambiguity and uncertainty and you just have to live with that and, uh, and wonder and cal- take some calculated risk. So Roger would, whenever there was actually a discreet answer to something, he'd say, why wonder when you can just ask? <laughs> Good advice. (laughs) It's really good advice. So over the last year or so as being in touch and you seeing about the work that we've been doing, 
one of the things that you've talked to me about is organizations breaking down the ceilings of growth and your experience that certainly with as Sam talked about at the beginning of the first podcast that we recorded with you about the fact that you were at Citrix for such a long time and saw such different changes in in the scale of the company mm-hmm. so can you yeah. can you just share some insights from your yeah. vast experience there? yeah well I'd start with you know sort of defining glass ceiling you know I mean it's as it as it sort of sounds, you know, you, you look up and you think there's all this space above you, but in fact, there's a piece of glass there that's preventing you from occupying that growth space above you. And so the question is, you know, what, you know, what is the glass? What, what is that piece of glass? And, you know, I think the way I have always thought of it and, and have, have experienced it is first of all, is that dysfunction in your first team and maybe even in your organization, it's always creeping in and therefore it requires constant maintenance, but it is a glass ceiling, okay? And what all glass ceiling things have in common is they can be broken with action. And so, I found in my career that I had to learn this over and over again. I had to learn how to sense that the top of my head was sore because the it was bumping up against the glass ceiling. I had to understand what it was about, and I had to believe that I was able to take action on it. It was something I could control but it's something you learn over and over again. So I think that's the first sort of glass ceiling uh, effect that I'd talk about. Uh, the second one is that typically you as an individual are a glass ceiling. You go as far as your experience and, and or education will take you unless you're very conscious of that and you're you take development uh, seriously and you realize that your development is on you. It's not on someone else, all right? After I became CEO at Citrix, I thought a lot about what that meant. One of the things that it meant is that the company could only grow to the degree that I grew. And if I didn't do proactive, and that sounds very cliche, but I would write down the beginning of the year as part of my self-evaluation that I had to share with the board, okay, Um, as part of our governance uh, model. I had to write down, you know, kind of what I did well, what I didn't do well, what areas I intended to develop in and how I intended to do that. And I did them, you know, and it, sometimes it was reading and studying a topic. Sometimes it was taking a seminar. Sometimes it was going to a particular conference, or sometimes it was uh, spending a certain amount of days, you know, with partners or customers that I wasn't, you know, I hadn't been spending in the past. So your development is on you. If you wake up every day and believe that and do something about it, you'll break those glass ceilings. 
The third type of glass ceiling are sort of business systems and processes. When you're growing, if they're, they're not, the systems aren't always breaking, then you're doing something wrong. So you have to understand and set expectations and in investments that have to be built into your plan around systems because, you know, what the systems that work when your company is 100 people don't work at 1,000. And by the way, the opposite is just as true. Systems that were designed for 1,000 people don't work for a 100-person company. So systems are very clearly a type of glass ceiling that you have to, and you can proactively break. Another one is, it's a natural thing that can happen as you grow, is you can lose the clarity around your purpose and and your ambition. So I would always try to, working at Citrix, I always try to repeat it over and over and over again. And refine it over time when things changed. And I think that when you have clarity around purpose and and ambition, and it's, you know, a big, hairy, audacious kind of goal, okay, it has the effect of breaking glass and gives you headroom. So that, for example, when we started with just a crazy focus on remote access, it was a glass ceiling until we articulated, you know, our purpose and ambition to be around the virtual workplace. And that gave us massive amount of headroom and permission to do all kinds of things that were beyond the glass ceiling of remote access. And then I think the other form of glass ceiling, some might call it, you know, fear, but I call it ambiguity. You know, it's sort of because there's ambiguity right here, that is, that's limiting me. I can't move past that. So the way you deal with it is you, you learn how to have comfort with ambiguity by, first of all, accepting that you cannot control every aspect of what affects your future as a business or as an individual. It's uh, an encouragement to, to be nimble and unafraid to pivot and, and change. Uh, it's, uh, an, it's an idea or an encouragement to not let inertia control your destiny. And, you know, inertia is, um, I consider it to be the most powerful force in the universe because the way I define inertia is doing today what I did yesterday. Okay. Because, gee, it worked yesterday. So intellectually, it holds water, right? Hey, that it worked yesterday, so I'll just do it again today. And then you wake up tomorrow and you feel the same way, and that's inertia. So uh, to break that and not let inertia control your destiny, having big ambitions, but also uh, taking risks and trying new things and, and not letting ambiguity hold you back from trying those things, I think is how you break that, that kind of glass ceiling. And then I think the, 
the other thing about, about dealing with ambiguity and being comfortable with it is to define your own playing field and rules, because usually ambiguity occurs when you look at the world through the lens of, of how everyone else does it and how everyone defines it. So an example from Citrix days uh, around this was, so we had this idea called virtual workplace and everyone said, uh, you know, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, um, well, it means, and we decided it meant there was a whole category of software that we uh, called access infrastructure. And somebody said, no, there isn't. There's no such category. Like if I call Gartner up and ask them, what's the, the TAM of access infrastructure? They'll say there's no such market. All right. But because the virtual workplace in and of itself was ambiguous in terms of what it is, you know, we would need to do to deliver such an experience. We define the playing field by calling it access infrastructure. And then we define the rules by then breaking the playing field down the way we wanted that made sense to us. And then that was something that we could then execute on. And it broke the ambiguity of the vision that we had in context of like, how do we make it real? So those would be my types of glass ceilings and, and what you do to, to break them. Yeah, and I, we talk about the ambiguity and almost lack of clarity. And actually we've said lack of clarity can paralyze people and it can paralyze teams and organizations, which is pretty much what, what, what you're saying. And it's, it's define it. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm playing that back to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you get to, you know, you get to define it and make it less ambiguous, uh, but that's how. Making it real. Is, yeah. is, is what you yeah. just said yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. how you get comfort with it you know yes yeah and then because if people don't know what's expected of them and they don't know where they're going and they can't see it so totally get that thank you so we touched on it a little bit earlier in fact you said dysfunction is a glass ceiling in itself so the fact that organizations need to keep working at it and they can't just take it for granted so we are describing that as organizational fitness now we're not people won't be able to see this so they can't see that you're nodding as i'm saying this so does does that make does that make sense to you total sense yeah complete sense and and it it makes sense because i don't think i did a particularly good job of that you know my observation about dysfunction always creeping in and being a glass ceiling is because (laughs) i you know, I believe I didn't do a good job, you know, around organizational fitness and making the team functional, a continuous process. Yes, that's why we do what we do. That is that's that is our why, because we want organizations to continue with the momentum and the dynamism that that we experienced in, in those early days at, at Citrix. Sure. Yeah, actually, I had a question for you, Mark. You talk about passionate and leaders and having the, them having the courage and the foresight to invest in the future. You've got one specific experience that you'd like to share with us. Maybe I'll talk about maybe a little bit of, I'm not sure I'd call it personal courage, but maybe persistence 
And uh, it's not a story that I, you know, tell very often, but I think, you know, oftentimes people can look at um, leaders, CEOs, whatever, and somehow always see the positive and not see some of the the forging that's gone into making them perhaps. So I think you probably in your uh, description of the podcast, you indicate that I was CEO from 2001 to 2015. And the fact is I became CEO in 1999. Okay. So I was appointed CE president in 1998 for the year. And then I was appointed CEO uh, in January of 1999. In uh, the June quarter of 2000, so six quarters into being CEO under my lack of leadership, missed the quarter uh, by Wall Street standards uh, by 15%. So we had set expectations uh, for our growth and profitability and we missed by 15%. And I had known for about five or six months that we were struggling. And uh, I was a new CEO learning on the job. And I felt that at the time that CEOs are supposed to have all the answers. Uh, They're supposed to be the smartest people in the room. And when it comes to the board of directors, they're just supposed to deliver good news. So I didn't ask for advice and help. And uh, I worked it on my own through many sleepless nights. And on June 12th of uh, 2000, we finally had to say uh, out in public uh, via a press release, and then appearing on uh, CNN in the prime time uh, business news hour, uh, that we were going to be the first major software company to uh, miss uh, their Wall Street expectations. And a month later, we met as a board, and the board removed my CEO title. They made me senior executive officer. And I had to write a press release that indicated that and that the board had decided to do a public search for a replacement. And um, obviously it was um, embarrassing, Uh, it was disappointing, Uh, but at the same time, I knew I had to be held accountable for the mistake. And at the board meeting, I made a little speech a very brief one because no one was too interested in much of what I had to say at that time. And what I said was um, that uh, I uh, take full responsibility. I drove us into this ditch and I fully intend to drive us out. And I walked out of the room, was uh, very you know, disappointed in myself, et cetera. And uh, after sort of thinking about it and grieving a little bit, uh, not too long, but a little bit, I got to work and uh, the board got to work interviewing replacements. And they saw quite a few 
potential replacements. And, uh, but in about, you know, 10 months time, we had solved all the problems and we were growing like gangbusters again. And they asked me if I wanted to have my title back. And that was in June of 2001. So the lesson there, well, first of all, that is the deepest scar that I have. And therefore, the thing that I learned the most from. And what I learned from it is that, first of all, the role of a leader is not to be the smartest person and have all the answers. The role of a leader is to be smart enough to surround themselves with people who, you know, complement each other and to whom you raise the questions that, that are important and that you don't have answers to. And that includes two teams, your executive team and your board team as well. And it led me to one of my axioms that I'll repeat, and that is the smartest and most successful people I know are the people that ask for the most advice. And I find that when you're younger in your career, as I was at that time, and you know I was a first-time CEO, you somehow believe that asking a question is an admission of ignorance and therefore weakness. And being weak is not, you know, a characteristic that you want to exhibit as CEO. Now, being vulnerable, I think, is very important to, to exhibit, but not being weak. And, uh, but people confuse that. And so it's advice that I like to give because it's, uh, it's something that I learned the very, very hard way. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mark. Podcast goal. I was messaging these two. I just said podcast goal. Yeah, <laughs> that, was that, was, that was just absolutely. And I was really hoping that you'd share that story, Mark, because you've, you've told me that before. And yeah. going back to our book thing that we were just talking about, I mean, there's, there's a quote in itself. The smartest people I know are the ones that ask for advice. And then you put a little bit of context around it. And then another one, dysfunction is a glass ceiling and they're broken down with actions. You've just got so many of these. They would just make an awesome book. So I think that's going to yeah. be, I'm going to, I'm going to have a, this can go into the podcast. We'll, we'll get a vote going, Mark, on, yeah. on who thinks you should write it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's do that. That's I a great idea. How okay. wonderful is that? So we're just coming on to the last question, actually, which is a question from my daughter, if you don't mind. So Brooke, as you know, um, was born as a Citrite because John Meyer the half, we met at Citrix. And uh, Brooke is now 12 and she's got a question for you, which is, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, first of all, I can't believe she's already 12. So uh, time does fly by. But like I said, it's a reminder of the family and growing up together and all is a big part of the joy of, of having been part of that culture. So I hope I, I'm not going to disappoint her. Uh, with my answer because I never thought, oh, I want to be a lawyer, a doctor, a fireman, a policeman, or this or that, okay? I had a fear of being bored. 
And so I always wanted to be something that was fun and something that I was good at. Okay. That makes sense. And totally. And when you're small, when you're young, you know, you don't necessarily know what that is because you don't know what all the choices are. And then you don't know what path, you know, will lead you there. And I think my ideas changed over time because, you know, I never, for example, I never expected to go to college because no one in my family ever had, you know, so why should I? But so many of my uh, classmates, you know, were going to college. So I figured, "Ah, I guess I ought to go. And I had to choose something to study. So I chose engineering as the thing to study. And I got to college and I instantly got bored by studying engineering. Um, I would never have put you down for that. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, and as I said, being bored was my fear. So I happened to see at my university, um, it had one of the great schools of, of design there. And I happened to see and meet students that were studying architecture, landscape architecture, visual design, and product design. And so I, I just fell in love with the idea of product design. And so I, I just, I changed when I, I think, so part of my advice to, to Brooke is no matter what you might think, you, you know, you want to be, be open to change when you see something that is more fun, that that's better and somehow you you're better at. So I, I wanted to be a product designer until I realized that, you know, I did very well in school, but I didn't think I was a very good product designer. And then when I found out what product designers actually did, you know, in on the job, when you're, you know, like right out of school, I said, man, uh, that that's boring. So I decided to, uh, get a business degree, just, uh, you know, someone gave me the advice and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So why not? So I decided to uh, get my MBA. It wasn't particularly fun, but it was very challenging. And fortunately I had learned a great work ethic from my dad, who was an electrician. And it took a great work ethic to, uh, to, to get through this school I went to. And it led me to a marketing role, which seemed to, you know, I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed messaging. I enjoyed learning about products and explaining them and so forth. And I did that for a big kitchen cabinet uh, manufacturer. <laughs> and uh, I spent a few years working uh, with, uh, with hardwoods and uh, until I needed to write some software to optimize the output of our factory. And so I sort of tripped over uh, teaching myself to write software to run the factory more efficiently. And it was another one of those moments. I was a marketing guy and it was okay. All right. And I I was having fun. But when I got a taste of writing software, you know, I just I said to my partner, like hardwood has been good to me, but I love (laughs) software, okay? And so that took me to my late 20s, in fact, to figure out that I wanted to be a software guy. 
And that became my, you know, life's ambition. So, you know, the, the lesson I think here is to trust your instinct, okay? To be, have the courage to change because especially young people, you know, they can get into the mode of doing what they think pleases others like their parents, okay? And the fact is in a life you have to please and know yourself first yeah. before you can please others like your parents. <laughs> and so, and learn how to connect the dots along the way. And, you know, because a master plan, like a, like a paint by numbers sort of thing, it does work for certain pursuits, you know, professional degrees. I mean, there is a paint by numbers way to become a, an attorney, for example, you know, that's an example. But generally speaking, for most people, it's about connecting dots. And as Steve Jobs said so prophetically, I think, that you can only connect dots looking backwards. And looking forward, you, you, you have to have, you know, some beliefs and guiding people and ideas and instinct to choose the the dots going forward. And then, you know, if you're staying curious, you're working hard, you're intersecting with, you know, great people and enjoying and embracing, you know, blessings from God, you know, you do end up connecting the dots that become the picture that describes your life. I'm, I'm smiling away here because I think what you've just described there from from our perspective and what we're doing now we've connected the dots and we are just loving what we're doing now and yeah. pivoting the way we've pivoted to get to where we are now yeah we're in a really lucky position yeah you. yeah i mean yeah. it's funny how you know there's the expression one door closes another opens yeah. right i mean yeah. it's a you know but you have to be paying attention and you have to have the courage to walk through and, you know, all of those things, you know, that, yes. well, this is, yeah, this has been great, great fun. Thank yeah. you so much for the opportunity to do this. Um, oh no, thank you. And, it's and, been and, our you know, pleasure. honestly to write down, because I would never have had a reason to write these things down. Okay. I write them down so I can, I was going to say for brevity, yeah, you know, but I'm not that brief even when I write them down. Uh, but you I'm know. not going to comment on that one. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But it's also it's fun to write answers to great questions that are meaningful to you. So uh, thank well, you. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. It's been fantastic. So all it remains for me is to say thank you, Mark. That was absolutely magnificent, as I think we expected. Thanks to, for listening to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group. I hope you've enjoyed this very, very special edition. Your comments and your subscriptions are as always gratefully received and we'll see you next time. <laughs>